the uh, picture you give us here of the Garden of Eden. And uh, Lord, as we look at this, uh, it's a mysterious place. Even now, we wonder where that garden is. And Lord, as we look at this text today, hopefully you can show us exactly where it is. If it's gone, Lord, uh, show us that. If it's still here, uh, Lord, give us some insight to where it's at. And Lord, uh, as we will see today, it's a garden where you walk, and we want to be where you walk. So show us how to get into that garden, Lord. I just ask you, teach us all these truths about the great Garden of Eden today as uh, we study about uh, uh, that garden, Lord. And we just ask that... Uh, we're just reminded today through our study of just how great you are, Lord, to, to make a creation uh, where uh, we can dwell with you and fellowship with you forever. And, Lord, that's only made possible by the blood of Jesus Christ. So it's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. All right, today we're going to be looking at the Garden of Eden in, in uh, chapter number 2. And uh, if you talk to most people in this world about the Garden of Eden, they don't really even believe in the Garden of Eden. Uh, uh, they just think it's some symbolic uh, ancient legend, uh, but it's really not a real place. But if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you believe in a real Garden of Eden. And uh, uh, people over the centuries have believed, Bible-believing Christians have believed in a real Garden of Eden, and they've spent a lot of money and a lot of time, some of them, looking for that Garden of Eden. There's been all sorts of expeditions that have been made by biblical archaeologists that have tried to search out and find the Garden of Eden. And some people have claimed to have found it. Uh, uh, I wish they'd tell me where it is if they have. But uh, you, today, you know, if you want to look it for it, uh, with the mapping uh, satellites that we have, you can get on Google Maps on your app and you can start looking over in that area. And, and uh, uh, you, who knows, you might be the one who discovers the Garden of Eden. Actually, in uh, 2001... Uh, the Canadian National Post uh, reported that the Garden of Eden had actually been found by a man named uh, Michael Sanders, who's director of expeditions for the uh, research, Biblical Research Foundation in Irving, California, and he claimed to have found the Garden of Eden. And what he did, he looked uh, at uh, various pictures na uh, from NASA satellites, and he came to the conclusion that the Garden of Eden, and this is where most people believe it is, uh, is somewhere in Turkey uh, near the Ararat Mountains where the Euphrates and Tigris rivers form there. Uh, and if you, as we look at these rivers today in the Garden of Eden, it very well, uh, uh, you know, I can understand where somebody might come up with that conclusion. But I believe he's wrong. I don't believe he's found the Garden of Eden. I don't believe you're going to find the Garden of Eden or none of us are going to find the Garden of Eden. But I'll tell you what. If you stick this out and you stay with me today, I'm going to tell you where the Garden of Eden is before we finish this message. I'm going to show you where the Garden of Eden is before we finish this message. So, so hang in there today. But let's, let's pick up where we left off last time. You remember Jehovah God had breathed uh, the very, his very life into the soul of Adam and into the nostrils of Adam, and Adam became a living soul. And... Uh, 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 now as we come to first, verse number 8, and that's where we're going to pick up today in chapter 2, verse number 8, uh, we're going to see God place Adam in the Garden of Eden. So that's where we're going to pick up uh, in uh, chapter 2, verse number 8. So, so go with me there. All right, now, it says, The Lord planted a garden. Uh, that's interesting. 
because we've had the creation, the seven days of creation, and now it says, this is where you start getting some clues to where this garden might be. It says the Lord God planted a garden, his own garden, eastward in Eden. And there he put the man, or really literally Adam, whom he had formed. He put him in that garden. Now notice again, uh, as you look at the first part of this verse, it says the Lord God. Not God, Elohim, but Jehovah Elohim. And so what you have here, you have Jehovah God dealing in a very personal way with Adam. And so uh, he, I believe that because he wanted this personal relationship with Adam, he wanted Adam to be very near him. And so he plants this garden and he places Adam in the garden. Now, uh, uh, the million dollar question is, where is the garden? Well, that word garden right there in verse number eight is, is itself a clue because the Hebrew word garden there has some special meaning. It means a fenced-in garden, or you could say a gated garden. So it's separate from the rest of God's creation. And access to that garden, if it's a gated garden, is limited. You, not everybody can get into that garden. And so there's only one person now, and that's Adam, and he's placed in the garden, so he gets in. But, but access to that garden is limited because it's gated. Now, the name of Eden also gives us a clue as to, to where this garden might be. Uh, the name Eden means a place of special delight. Now, go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, and look at the very first part of that verse. Look, listen to what it says. It says, then God saw everything that he had made, and what did he say? Indeed, it was what? Not good, but very good. In other words, very pleasant, very delightful. But now he makes this garden, and this garden is even more delightful than the, the, the rest of the creation. It, it's so delightful to God that it's the very place where God walked. We're told in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, that Adam and Eve heard God, the Lord God, walking in the cool of the day in the garden. So apparently they heard him every day in that garden. So it's a place where God walks. So, so keep that in mind as we go forward. Now, it, it, we get another clue here in, this, in verse number 8. We're told that the garden, he planted a garden eastward in Eden. Now, so, so really what the word eastward means, it's not literally a, like east, west, south, north. It means a front place. It means to be in the front of a place or on the outskirts of a place. Let it, let's put it that way. So we know that it's on the outskirts of where God walked. Now, where did God live? God lives and has lived forever in the city of God, in Mount Zion. And so this garden, we know, is on the outskirts of Mount Zion, the heavenly city, and it's also on the outskirts of the earth. And so I believe it's like a bridge between heaven and earth. And, and so you have the Lord walking from heaven into, into this garden and Adam walking from earth, being in, on earth, and he's being placed in the garden. Now, in verse number nine, we get two very important clues right there in, in, in verse number nine as to the location of the garden. Listen to what he says. He says, and out of the ground... The Lord made every tree grow. Now, what is he talking about here? Well, he's talking about in the garden. 
Because remember, on the third day of creation, he had made all of the plants and all of the grass and all of the trees. And so, so we're talking about something different here. So out of the ground at this point in the garden, the, the Lord makes every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now, there's something special. There's two things here are two plants here that are very special and different from the rest of the earth. Because look at what he says. He says, the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, so you've got two special trees. You've got the tree of life and you've got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, do you think those are literal trees? Remember what we talked about last week. In Genesis all things are written as literal, and later on they become symbolic. They don't start out as symbolic, uh, and, 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 and they represent something that's literal. They start as, out as something literal that represents something that's symbolic. And so, so these are literal trees. So there's actually a literal tree of life in the Garden of Eden, and there's a, there was actually a literal tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. Now, so... What's the tree of life for? The tree of life is where you eat of that tree and you live forever. Hey, I'd, I'd like to have that. That's the, you know, the fountain of youth. And what's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It's exactly what it says it is. Once you eat of that tree, then you have knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve ate of that tree, and you and I, in effect, have eaten of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Aren't you glad? That you, can, that you know evil? Aren't you glad that you have evil thoughts and that you can think evil and that you have a choice every minute of every day and every second of every day to do good or to do evil? I'm not glad. And I'll be glad when I don't have that choice anymore because it makes life a battle, a constant battle where the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit wars against the flesh. Now, I wonder why God used trees. I mean, he could have used anything as the agency to give Adam and Eve life and to give them knowledge of good and evil. But he chose trees. I mean, he could have used put the knowledge of good and evil in the air. He could have put life in the air. He could have breathed life. He actually did breathe life into Adam. Uh, we see the river of life in, in the New Jerusalem. And so you can find life in water. Uh, and, and that is literal, but it's also symbolic of eternal life. And this tree is also eternal is symbolic of eternal life but God chose to put it in a tree and bear fruit that if you eat of that fruit it gives you eternal life uh, and uh, no doubt when he planted that tree of life he made it so that as long as Adam went into the garden and he ate of that tree he would live forever what a deal I mean he could have lived forever and ever and ever simply by eating of that tree but the problem was there was another tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he was told not to eat of that tree. That was the tree of the, where, that the, he was forbidden to eat of. Uh, now, the next thing that we see as we look at the Garden of Eden, we're going to see this river flowing right through the middle of Eden, and once it leaves Eden, it's going to part into four different rivers. So pick up with me in verse number 10, and let's look at these, these, uh, these rivers here. Verse number 10, it says, Now a river went out of Eden to, the, to water the garden. And from there, so it comes out of Eden, and from there, where does it go? It goes to the earth. And on earth, it departed and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. A lot of people say that that's the Ganges River. Uh, it, is, it is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah 
where there is gold, and, and the gold of the land is good. Uh, that's why a lot of people have looked for the Garden of Eden, because they figure if they find the Garden of Eden, find these rivers, uh, they can find the uh, Pishon River, then they can find a lot of gold. So a lot of people have actually gone out and looked for those rivers with that intent. And, and also onyx stones are there, which you, you, those are ancient Hebrew words for stone, so we really don't know exactly what stone that is, but more than likely it's like a diamond. Uh, just like we saw in the New Jerusalem. We saw gold and we saw diamonds. All right, and then he says the name of the second river is Gihon. Uh, it is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. So that's a, a good indicator there. We, we know where Cush is down in northern Africa. And the name of the third river is Hedelikal, which is, we know is to be the Tigris River. And it is one of those, it is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria, on the front place of Assyria. It, it borders Syria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates River, and we've all heard of the Euphrates River. So here's the picture I want you to get now. You've got the Garden of Eden, this beautiful garden that God has planted. It's on the outskirts of Mount Zion, and it's on the outskirts of earth. And running through the middle of this garden is this great river. And then as this river leaves Eden, now I personally believe that Eden, I'll get to that later. I don't want to give away my, my, uh, all my clues here yet, but I guess I'll give it to you. I personally believe it's lifted above uh, the earth. And so as that river falls, there's this great river fall. And as it hits the earth, it splits into four rivers, and we get the name of, names of those four rivers right here uh, in chapter number 2, verses 10 through 14. Now, if you were to try to find these four rivers today, it would be impossible to find these rivers. Impossible. Nobody can find these rivers. And let me tell you why. Because they were pre-flood rivers. And when the flood waters of this, from this water canopy came upon the earth, the whole earth was inundated, the whole sphere of the earth was inundated with sea depths of water all the way around it, which moved all of the surface of the earth. So the whole topological uh, uh, surface of the earth was changed, and the banks of all these rivers would have been changed. So we don't really know, you know, exactly where these rivers are, and I don't think we'll ever know exactly where these rivers are, maybe until we get, or where they were, until we... Uh, until we get to heaven. Now, uh, after the flood, I believe there were rivers there. Once all the sediment settled uh, and the, 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 rivers were, the river banks were all changed, the rivers were there. There were four rivers in that general area for sure, and I think that's where the names of these rivers come from. You've got to remember now, when, 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 when these guys lived a long, long time, Seth, the son of Adam, died only 14 years before Noah was born. And so Noah had access uh, to some original documents, no doubt, or to some, I mean, he was close to the original source. I mean, he was, he was talking to people who knew Adam, who knew Seth. And so uh, he knew the names of these rivers, but the rivers and, and were gone at this point or re rerouted at this point. And no doubt, if Eden was on the earth, like a lot of people believe, Eden would have been totally wiped out in the flood. And so uh, if you believe that Eden was on the earth, then, there's, then the garden, you know, I can tell you where the Garden of Eden is, it's gone. But I don't believe that's the case. Now, look at verse number uh, 
15, the next verse that we get. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. Now, that's interesting because we know that Adam, where was Adam when he was created? He was created out of the dust of the earth. And so we, we see here that God takes the Adam and he puts him in the Eden in order to do what? In order to tend the garden. And what, did, what was God going to do by having Adam tend the garden? He was going to have, Adam was, that was going to be the way Adam actually served God. And so he gives him his job. And his job is to tend the garden. Now, I don't know about you, but in my Bible it says we're supposed to rule and reign with Christ. Uh, We're supposed to judge angels. We're supposed to rule over angels. I mean, tend a garden? What do you mean, tend a garden? I mean, why in the world? I mean, if Adam was created to rule and reign over the earth, if he was created to rule and reign over angels, I mean, why in the world would God have him tended have him serving by tending a garden. Well, first of all, there was nobody to rule. He was the only one on earth to rule. Now, he had a wife here shortly, but uh, uh, good luck trying to rule your wife. Uh, so, so I know that he, you know, that wasn't what God was talking about when he said we're going to rule and reign over, over uh, on, with Christ on this earth. Seriously, God knew at this point that Adam wasn't ready to rule anything or anybody. I mean, he had just been created. He had a lot to learn. And so he started him out with a pretty menial job. And that job was taking care of the plants in the garden. But what a great place to learn, to serve God, uh, to learn those basics about serving God and obeying God. No better place. I mean, you want to learn about serving and obeying God, get you a garden. Get you a big garden and start working in it, and you'll see how difficult it is to, 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 to serve God in that manner. And, and how, did Adam, how much did Adam succeed? He didn't succeed at all, did he? He failed. He failed totally. And, and uh, we're going to get into his failure later on when we get to chapter number three. But there's a lesson here for us. Because God always starts his people out in menial jobs. I say always. There might be some exceptions to that. But if you're a child of God, I I tell you this right now. You get born again, you're not going to be the next Billy Graham the next day. It's not going to happen. I mean, I remember when I got born again, and I had my experience out in the desert, and I met the Lord out in the desert, and I was thinking, man, great things are going to happen. God's going to change my life, and great things are going to happen. And the first thing God, God, God got for me was driving a diaper truck. And, and, and you can't get more menial than that. And so that's the way God works. But remember what Jesus said. He is, who is faithful in a few things will be given many things. In other words, you will be given more important positions. You will be given leadership positions. You will rule and reign at some point. But you got to start out with the small things. That's the way God works. And so he puts Adam in the garden and he, he puts him there to really do something small. Now look at the next, the last two verses we'll look at today. In verse 16 and 17. And the Lord commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. I mean, anything you want to eat, as much as you want. I mean, how would you like that? 
I mean, to eat, I mean, actually, you can do that now. If you want to eat fruit and vegetables, you can eat as much of them as you want to eat. But uh, he says you can eat of every tree of the garden, and you may freely eat as much as you want to eat. There's no limit to what you can eat. I mean, Adam was placed in a garden, and, and, and he was really free to do anything he wanted to do except one thing. Look at the next verse. He says, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. That's a pretty strong punishment for eating of the forbidden fruit. You eat of that fruit, he tells Adam, you're going to die. Now, you stop and think about it. When Adam was placed in the garden, he, he, was, he was put in a perfect environment. Everything was good. In fact, it wasn't just good. Everything was very good. Now, he's placed in the Garden of Eden, which is very delightful to the Lord. And so it's the best possible place in the universe you could be. You're living in the very presence of God. He's been, he's, God has breathed his breath into his nostrils. He's become a living soul. He's been perfected. And, and the only thing that he can do to mess up is eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, there weren't any pagan temples there. To, to tempt him to, into idolatry. There weren't any bars where he could go hang out at night and get himself into all sorts of trouble. Uh, there wasn't any internet where he could look at pornography. There wasn't any drugs because we, you look back at verse number 8, every tree was made, was made uh, pleasant. It, it said it was made, he, God made every tree to grow that is pleasant. Uh, to the sight, and good for food. And so there was nothing there that could harm him. He could eat of any plant that he wanted to eat. There weren't any women there to tempt him into adultery. And, I mean, besides, I mean, when he had Eve, he had the most beautiful woman that's ever been created. I mean, when, when, first, when he first saw her, he said, remember, he said, whoa, man. I mean, she was, she was the most beautiful thing anybody had ever seen. So, so he couldn't commit adultery. And so all that Adam could do at that point was good. I mean, he was a living soul. He was made holy and pure in the sight of God. He was filled with the very spirit of God, so much so that I believe he was lit up like a light bulb. I mean, like a light bulb that emanated light different from anything we've ever seen. It emanated the very glory of God. And there was only one thing that he could do that was evil. And that was to eat of the fruit, forbidden fruit, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see what God had done? He had simplified Adam's morality uh, down to one simple choice, and that was not to eat or not to eat of the forbidden fruit. And just so he had... Uh, a reason not to eat of the fruit, God told him, you eat of this fruit and you will surely die. I can't think of a better reason not to eat of the fruit. Isn't it amazing the fruits that we eat of now that are killing us? There's, there's fruit everywhere in this world that you can eat of, and when you're eating of it, you're dying. It's everywhere. So don't get too hard on Adam because Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit because we're eating of forbidden fruit every day. We're eating of the things that harm our body. We're eating of the things that harm uh, our, 
our souls, that harm people around us, that harm us, I mean, I mean that, that harm our relationship with God. We're doing it all the time. So we can't get too hard on Adam, can we? Now, why did God give Adam that choice? Let me tell you why he gave him that choice. Because he loved Adam and he wanted Adam to love him. And real love is a choice. Look, in America, we like to sing songs about love. We like to tell people how much we love them. But love is action. Agape love is action, and it requires a choice. It's not forced love. It's not robotic love. God could have created Adam to love him and made him where he couldn't do anything but love him, but that's not really love. That's not the kind of love God made Adam to love with. I mean, we were created in the image of God with the choice to love or to hate. And we love God by obeying God. That's why God says in his word over and over again that I desire obedience and not sacrifice. I'm more interested in your obedience than your religion is what he's saying. I'm more interested in you doing what I tell you to do in, in, the, in the, what you do on Sunday at church. I mean, I'm interested in that. But God's much more interested in our obedience than, than, he, is, than, than he is our, our, our uh, worship. Because really, real worship is obedience. And real obedience and real worship is love. And so as long as Adam didn't eat of that forbidden fruit, you know what he was saying? As long as he looked at that and said, I'm not going to eat of that. You know what he was saying? He was saying, God, I love you. I love you. I love you, and I'm going to obey you, and I'm going to trust you. You said I would die if I'd eat of this fruit. I'm not going to eat of this fruit. And so as long as he did that, he was saying to the Lord, I love you. But he didn't love him very long, did he? Because he really didn't love the Lord. Adam didn't know what love was at this point. Eve didn't know what love was at this point. He wasn't was coming along here in uh, uh, next week. We'll look at the creation of Eve. But... Uh, uh, Adam didn't know what love was. But we know the rest of the story. We know that Adam chose to disobey God. You know, Eve was deceived. Adam wasn't deceived, Paul tells us. Adam Adam knew when he ate of that fruit that he was disobeying God. And in the one way that he could express his love to God, he had failed and he he fell into sin, and we know the rest of the story. All right. I told you I was going to tell you before we left, and well, i got 20 minutes, 25 minutes to tell you where the location of the Garden of Eden is. I wish I'd had Nathan up here, and I'd have him do a drum roll, and, and then I would, I would get it going. And, all right, I'm going to tell you where it's at. Y'all ready? And I'm not going to say I don't know, because I do know. The Garden of Eden is in the new Jerusalem. I have no doubt about that. And you don't have to agree with me. You know, if you want to be wrong, you can choose to disagree <laughs> when I'm done. But seriously, we won't break fellowship over this and don't send me any emails that you disagree with me or, or you don't think that's, the, you know, that's right. I'm going to show you in scripture why I believe that here in just a minute. And I think I can nail it down and, and prove it to you. And then you prove otherwise, you, then you can send me, if you can prove otherwise, then you can send me an email. 
But the number one reason, and I just put it in a general form here, the number one reason that I believe that the Garden of Eden is the same as the New Jerusalem is that the Garden of Eden was the place where God placed perfect men and perfect woman when time began. And it's where the perfect man and the perfect woman perfected and redeemed by Jesus Christ will end up in the end. And so I believe it's the same place. So Eden, as far as I'm concerned, is on the outskirts of Mount Zion. It's those delectable hills as you come into Mount Zion, the very city of God. And it's the very dwelling place of God. And I believe that it's right there, right now, sitting in a dimension very near Jerusalem. Now, how big it is, we're given some measurements over in Revelation, and it's pretty big. It's the, it's the size of the moon. So it's sitting there right above, I think, that bridge between heaven and earth sits right above the old city of Jerusalem. You remember when Jacob was running from Esau, and he stopped in Bethel, which is very close, just a few miles from Jerusalem. It's there that he saw his vision of Jacob's ladder, and he saw angels descending and ascending from heaven to earth. It's from the Mount of Olives that Jesus ascended to heaven, and he didn't go very far, and he's going to come right back to that same spot when he returns to the earth at his second coming, when we come with him to rule and reign on earth. And so I believe that Eden is on the outskirts eastward of Mount Zion. And it sits there, in the, the, it, it, right there today, it's still sitting there. Now, let me give you some biblical proof so you, you won't think I'm nuts here before you leave. I mean, y'all, you don't think that anyway, but, but go to Revelation 22. We just went over this, and we, we kind of hinted at this when we were in Revelation. I told you I thought back then maybe it might be the same place, but I'm convinced of it now, and I'm going to show you here in a minute through these verses that we're going to look at. All right, remember back in Revelation chapter number 22, we're looking at the, the city of, uh, uh, of the New Jerusalem. And let's just pick up in verse 22.1. And he showed me a pure river, the water of life, clear as crystal proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, I can see this river proceeding forth from the throne of God, and it's flowing somewhere. Where is it flowing? Well, in Genesis, we see it flowing right through the middle of the Garden of Eden. And what's really interesting is when you get over to Zechariah, it talks about when Jesus Christ returns, there's going to be an earthquake and there's going to be all of these rivers that are formed that flow in every direction. Four directions, four rivers. And so I believe that that river flowing from Eden one day will cascade over uh, Eden and onto the earth and then flow in four directions uh, throughout the earth and it'll water the earth at that point. But going on now, he says, he says, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb and in the middle of its street and on either side of the river, watch this was the tree of life. 
That's God's agency in which he imparted life to Adam, and that's God's agency, that tree, in which he is going to part life to us, impart life to us. We're going to eat of that tree, and we're going to live forever and ever and ever. Now, you think when, when Adam and Eve sinned, God chopped down the tree of life? No way. No way he chopped. God doesn't chop down trees. We chop down trees. God doesn't chop down trees. I mean, he, I, I believe that tree is still there, which bore 12 fruits, fruits uh, each yielding fruit uh, every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So Adam and Eve in this garden where we're going to be one day could have eaten of that tree and they could have lived forever and ever and ever. All they had to do was not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, here's the question. If Revelation 22 is a picture of Eden, and now it's going to be called the New Jerusalem, and maybe it's been modified a little bit since then, uh, it sounds about like the same place to me. And I think it's the New Jerusalem because we've got the Old Jerusalem, and it's really always been there. It's the city of God. It's the eternal city. It's called the eternal city in the Bible, so it's always been there. And if the tree of life is there, why doesn't Revelation 22 mention the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I'll tell you why. Because it's gone. It's gone. It's not needed anymore. Look, God placed it there in a perfect environment. And what was its purpose? To test Adam. To give Adam one choice. One choice that he could make to do evil. And that was to eat of that forbidden fruit. But I got news for you. When we get to the new Jerusalem, we will already have made that choice. Let me tell you what. You, you won't get there if you haven't made that choice. If you haven't made the choice, if you haven't made the choice to choose good, then you're not going to be in the new Jerusalem. And God's going to make you into a perfect being who can do nothing but good. A perfect being with a perfect soul, with a perfect mind, uh, with a perfect heart, with a perfect will. You'll always have that. Why? Because on this earth, you made a choice that you want to be good and you want to do good. Now, we fail at that because we're still in, we still have Adam's nature. And we still have the knowledge of good and evil. But God's going to take all of that away. And the tree's not going to be necessary anymore. Look, if you're not making that choice now, You'll never get into the Garden of Eden. You'll never get into the New Jerusalem. Look, we have every, I mentioned this last week, every minute of every day, every second of every day, we have an opportunity to make a choice between good and evil. And we should always choose good. But we don't always choose good because we live in a fallen nature and the flesh warth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And sometimes we lose the battle. But if it's not in your heart and soul to always want to do good, then you're not going to be in the new Jerusalem. 
It's as simple as that. You won't be there. So Adam had that choice. We, we make that choice now. And we make it every day. But really it's a one-time choice because when I received Jesus Christ into my heart, you know what I was choosing? I was choosing to have a relationship with God. I was choosing to love God. I was choosing to be obedient to God. Am I always obedient to God? No, but I've made the choice. And when I'm in heaven, I have made that choice, and God is going to give me the capability to always be good. Thank God for that day when it comes. When every thought I have is good, when my heart is nothing but good, when I am full of love, and no, there's no hate, there's no evil, none of that stuff. It's gone, it's gone, and that tree's gone with it. And the only thing that we'll eat of in that day is the tree of life. And we will live forever and ever and ever and ever. Now, let me, you, you, you see the gold, you see the, the diamonds in the New Jerusalem, so we won't hit on that, but let's look at another biblical proof here. After Adam and Eve fell, now we're going to jump ahead a little bit here, and God had told them they were going to surely die, and what does God do next? He, it's interesting because he doesn't destroy the Garden of Eden. You'd think maybe he'd just say, well, hey, you don't want it? I'm going to destroy it because if he destroyed it, he would destroy it for me and you too. He doesn't destroy the, Eden, the Garden of Eden. What does he do? Go back to Genesis 3. And look at verse number 24. So he drove out the man. Chapter 3, verse 24 of Genesis. He drove out the man and he placed cherubim. What are cherubim? Angels. He play, where do angels live? On earth or in heaven? They come back and forth between earth and heaven, but where do God's angels live? They live in heaven. So he, he placed angels at the east, at the outskirts of the Garden of Eden. So he didn't destroy the Garden of Eden, as some say. And I don't believe it was destroyed by the flood. And they, each, and, and they each had a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Now that flaming sword, that lit up sword, I believe puts Eden into a dimension of light that we cannot see. But it's still there. Uh, and the reason we're kept out of the Garden of Eden, because what would we do? If, I, if any of us could get a hold, I mean, it's my birthday. If I could get a, it's my 69th birthday, I could use some fruit right now. And if I could get a hold of it, I would go for it. I'm surprised some of y'all didn't mail me any of that fruit. I was hoping for some of that stuff. Instead, I get a card telling me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm about over the hill. <laughs> and I am, trust me. But you see, you see, the Garden of Eden wasn't destroyed. The Garden of Eden is still there. The tree of life wasn't destroyed. It was protected, and it was saved for another day. It was saved for me and you because one day we're going to eat of that tree. Now, how many of you agree now that the Garden of Eden is in New Jerusalem? Raise your hand whether you... Whether you okay, I'm going to give you the clincher now. If you don't agree after this, you're blind. All right, because I'm, I'm just going to read it to you. 
Go to Ezekiel chapter 28. In Ezekiel chapter 28, you get this lamentation against the king of Tyre. The king of Tyre is a type of Satan. And there's no doubt that this lamentation is not just against the king of Tyre. More importantly, it's a lamentation against Satan. So go to Ezekiel chapter 28, and I want you to pick up in verse number 11, Ezekiel 28, 11. And this is Ezekiel writing. He says, moreover, the word of the Lord came to be saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord. Now I want you to, what this is, it's about the king of Tyre in the immediate sense, but it's also spiritually symbolic of Satan. Okay, and really more importantly, it is about Satan. We get some insight into Satan we don't get anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, probably more here than any, we get anywhere else in the Bible, right here in Ezekiel chapter Number 28. Now jump down to verse number 14. And you can see this is about Satan. Because obviously this wasn't the king of Tyre. He says, you were the Messiah cherub. You were the anointed cherub. You were like king over all the other angels. Who who covers. In other words, you were in charge of everything. I established you. And look where he was. He says, you, in verse number 40, you were on the holy mountain of God. What's the holy mountain of God? That's Mount Zion. That's the heavenly Jerusalem. That's the new Jerusalem. Satan was there in the new Jerusalem. He was the archangel. Now, jump back up to verse number 12, and let me read it again. It says, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were of the seed of perfection. You were full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now watch this. Now he's talking about Satan before he fell. You were in Eden. Where was Satan? He was in Eden. Where was Adam and Eve when they fell? They were in Eden. In what? The garden of Adam? No. The garden of this earth? No. Where was the garden of Eden? The garden of Eden was and is the garden of God. You see, that's where Satan was dwelling when Adam and Eve were created. Now, that clears up a lot of theological problems for me because a lot of people have all sorts of theories and they dream up these stories about how Satan got into the Garden of Eden and how they had this battle and he fell from this battle and he fell down to the Garden of Eden and just in time, you know, to, to tempt Adam and Eve into falling into sin. No, when Adam was put into the Garden of Eden... Satan was already there because Satan was living in the New Jerusalem. He was living on the mountain of God. He was living on Mount Zion. Satan doesn't fall to this earth because we can go to the book of Job and we see Satan going back and forth and all the angels of God going back and forth between heaven and earth. So Satan is still living in heaven when Job is written. And Job is written after the flood and so we know we know that Satan didn't fall. When did Satan fall? Jesus tells us. Now, I've made this case. I'm not going to go through all of that again today. But Satan fell when Jesus died on the cross. That's when Satan was defeated because he is the accuser. And he had no reason to accuse anymore because we've been perfected forever in Jesus Christ. And so see, see how this makes sense. Satan was in the garden when God placed Adam in the garden. And that garden 
at one point, Satan is kicked out much later on. But one day, you and I are going to go back to that garden. I rest my case. Do your research and try to prove me wrong. I don't think you can do it. Look, again, you don't want to agree with that. We can still have fellowship. But you need to go to another church to do it. I'm teasing. I remember when Brenda and I were in Israel and we were standing on the gates of the old city and you stand there near the dung gate and it's high above the rest of all of Jerusalem and you get a really good view. You look off to your left and you see the Dome of the Rock and you see the Wailing Wall and you see the Jews over there, you know, pounding back and forth against the Wailing Wall and then you look off to your right down through the valley of Kidron and you, you see the book Kidron and then you see, the, you see on the other side of the book Kidron is the Mount of Olives. And that to me was the most striking thing I saw on our trip to Israel. I mean, sit there and look at the very place where Jesus ascended back to the Garden of Eden and on the outskirts of Mount Zion, where he's dwelling right now. And I remember thinking, one day, really, really soon, he's going to come down to that very spot that I'm looking at. And we're going to be with him. And we're going to rule and reign with him forever. And I believe that's where we're going to live while we're ruling and reigning with him. We're not going to have very far to go. It's right there. I couldn't see it, but I knew it was there. That new Jerusalem, that heavenly Jerusalem sits right above Jerusalem. It's right there. And one day we're going to live there and rule and reign from that spot. And you know what? We're going to be able to eat of the tree of life. You know, I don't know that we need to or not. I mean, maybe that's our choice. Eat of it, don't eat of it. You know, eat of it and you live. Don't eat of it, you, you die. I'm going to eat of it. You're going to eat of it. We'll be fighting over the fruit. I can see it now. No, I'm teasing. I'm sure there will be plenty. And we're going to drink of that, from that river of life. And we're going to live forever and ever and ever. Can you believe that? Man, I believe that. And you'd be a fool not to want to be there. But here's the problem. Those angels, those cherubim, they're still there. And they're guarding those gates. How are we going to get in? The psalmist tells us, if you go with me over one last verse and we'll wrap it up. The psalmist tells us how we get in over in one Psalm chapter 118, a great messianic psalm. We see quoted a couple of places in the gospel. Look at Psalm 118, right in the very middle of your Bible. Look at verse number 19. This is going to be our call, our cry. Open to me the gates 
of righteousness. Lord, let me in. And I will go through them. And I'll go through them, and I promise you, I'm going to go through them, and I'm going to be praising Jehovah God. This is the gate of the Lord. This is through which the righteous shall enter. This is how we're going to get in. I will praise you, for you, you Jehovah Elohim, have answered me. And watch this. This is how we get in. Because you have become my Yeshua, my salvation. That's what Yeshua means. Jehovah is salvation. And who is Jehovah? He is the stone which the builders rejected. He has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. This is how we get into the Garden of Eden. It is marvelous in our eyes, and this is the day that the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't wait to see Eden. I can't wait to see the new Jerusalem. I can't wait to see Mount Zion. But most of all, most of all, I can't wait to see my Savior who died to redeem me from my sin so that I could be perfected and be in a position to live with him forever and ever, and ever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for what you've done for us. We can just see it now. We could envision the day of your glorious presence in, in not only in Mount Zion, but in the Garden of Eden, Lord. We long to be there with you. Lord, we cry out, Maranatha. Lord, come quickly. Lord, we cry out today in gratitude because of what you've done for us on the cross, how you shed your blood for us, how your body was broken so that we can live forever and ever and ever with you, so that we can eat of the tree of life, Lord, so that no longer will we have to fight uh, with evil, Lord, that all that is in us when you redeem us finally will be perfect and good. Lord, when you glorify us, we'll be like you. We just praise you and thank you for that day that's coming soon. We thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.